Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Are you pregnant or newly postpartum? then this is for you. Postpartum Embodied is an online fourth trimester preparation course to ease your transition into motherhood. Created by the wonderful Monique Peters, who is the co-founder of Women's Health Clinic, Maya Mothers Collective. Mon has teamed up with five other experienced postpartum health professionals to bring you this incredible course that will help you prepare for the most nourishing postpartum possible. With over 45 online videos, you can either watch via an app, on your phone, or listen to whenever convenient. It brings you the invaluable knowledge of an international board certified lactation consultant, postpartum doula, holistic sleep expert, psychologist, and nutritionist. This course offers over 25 breastfeeding videos, information on biologically normal infant sleep, the mother's mental load, relationship changes, how to set boundaries with friends and family, and all the nutrition info you need to thrive, not just survive your postpartum. Plus, so much more. But not only that, it includes access to a private community of like-minded women who are either pregnant or newly postpartum. Many women prepare for birth but don't really put much thought into what happens afterwards and we know that winging postpartum will not set you up for success. Having a plan, boundaries and support is what will contribute to a positive fourth stage. Guys, this is truly something I wish I had for my own postpartum. The course intake opens on April 20th and will be open for enrollment for seven days only. Mon has given me a code for my PBA listeners. It is simply PBA for a discount off the course. Don't miss out on this incredible offering and plan for your postpartum like you would plan for your birth. All right, guys, let's get into the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today's episode features the two birth stories of author, podcast host, postpartum doula, and motherhood support mentor, Anna. After coming off the pill and recognizing the inconsistencies of her cycle, Anna began investigating what was going on. 
an unpleasant experience with a fertility specialist sent her on a path to find more holistic care, eventually aligning with a care provider who successfully guided her to conceive her first baby. When a midwife suggested she birth her baby at home, although hesitant at first, her curiosity was the catalyst for the deep dive into physiological birth that followed, enabling her to detach from any beliefs held from stories passed down and reclaim her innate feminine wisdom that she was built to birth her babies. Although her two home births progressed in a similar way, she takes us through their notable differences and what wisdom she gained from each experience. Anna's initiation into motherhood inspired her to write her first book, Mama, You're Not Broken, where she breaks the unspoken rule to stay silent about the swirling emotions of motherhood, sharing research and personal experiences that shed light on the taboo feelings around modern day mothering. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it is such a joy. Thank you for having me. Could you just start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am here in the Lake Macquarie area, beautiful Awabakal country in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And at my place, there is myself and my partner. And we have our older girl who's three and a half and our little bubba who's going to be five weeks in just a couple of days beautiful now for anyone that doesn't know you're also an author you created the incredible book mama you're not broken could you just tell us a little bit about that yeah sure so as you said the title is mama you're not broken and the sort of the subheading or the tagline for it is unmasking the unspoken emotions of modern motherhood and when I had my first child I really found you know, there's just, there's so much practical wise that we don't know. We don't, like, we don't hear about until we're in the thick of it often. Things around sleep and feeding and mm. even birth injury and all that kind of stuff. But really the the difficulty I found was that there was nothing explaining how I felt. You know, I walked into a bookshop and there was a million books on um, weaning and making your birth plan and all of that kind of things, but nothing that was speaking to you know, the guilt and anger and isolation and grief and all of those things that, that come along with, with motherhood. So, yeah, I created a book with 10 chapters covering 10 different emotions, even, even boredom and contentment, things that are taboo generally. Like if you, if you brought these things up in a standard mother's group kind of circle it would be like oh I don't I don't know if this is something that we can can raise here yeah so true so yeah yeah because you don't want to you don't want to offend anyone but you also don't want to make anyone feel worse if you're having a great time you don't want to drag anyone down you don't want to be the the wet blanket if everyone else seems to be having a good time and it's hard to speak honestly about some of these things so that's the that's the crux of of the book and yeah I get some really nice messages to yeah reflecting on how people have felt really seen and heard in these pages whether their baby is one week old or some people have said this is the first book that I've read since my eldest was born and she's now six so 
yeah, it's really it's really nice to get that feedback. Yeah, I bet. Amazing resource for women. I will pop a link in the show notes for anyone interested. Thank you. So jumping to your birth stories, were your babies planned conceptions? They were. Both of them were. Uh, the first one was a long time coming. So I was working at a, at a health clinic uh, straight out of uni. So I was about 22, 23 years old and and I decided to go off the pill because I'd seen a number of patients who sort of were having issues with their cycle around PCOS and things like that that were having atypical presentations. And I thought, I, you know, like I don't actually know what it feels like to not to not be on the pill. I've been on it since I was 14 for managing uh, irregularity, which I now realise is just that my body hadn't found its own rhythm yet, but the things you see in retrospect. And between then and we conceived my first daughter just before my 28th birthday. And, yeah, so between coming off the pill and then I'd only had, like, a couple of cycles and there was a lot of investigation um, a lot of sort of being brushed aside by um, by obstetric professionals going, oh, well, one comment I had when I walked in to a specialist who I'd waited months to see to try and figure out what was going on was, oh, you have questions. I thought you were just another little dumb blonde girl that wanted me to freeze her eggs. Oh, wow. And I was blown away. Yeah, that's shocking. I was so so offended and he hadn't read my case file at all and he wanted to put me under general anesthetic to do keyhole surgery the next week before even doing any blood tests or anything else you know just to see what was going on because you can't see unless you're actually operating and I was just like excuse me what did you just say so clearly I threw those referrals in the bin on the way out of the surgery and never went back um so yeah then I went through a whole lot of uh, kind of the alternative methods of things or more traditional methods like herbal medicines and acupuncture and all sorts of things and just, yeah, it wasn't happening and and eventually we sought the advice of another fertility specialist who was lovely and she said, you know, just I need you to come off all your supplements that you're taking for six weeks, have this kind of washout period, and then we'll get some baseline blood tests done and we'll we'll probably start you on Clomid after that because it's been a long time coming and and we don't know what's going on and you want to have a baby. So this is our plan. What's Clomid? Um, Clomiphene. It's a a drug that um, enforces ovulation basically. Okay. Because I had eggs there but I wasn't having a cycle. Okay. So, yeah, I, I believe it's to help like maturely eggs and then release them right. if they're sitting there but not happening don't don't quote me on that go and <laughs> go and do a google listeners yeah. Okay. um but yeah during that yeah I came off everything and maybe three or four weeks after that I had a period which was the first one in I don't know 12 months or two years or something like that and I was like right we're doing this and <laughs> I spontaneously booked a a cabin basically out in the woods off grid jacuzzi under the stars and we went for a few nights and you can imagine what was happening there and yeah I fell pregnant and that was it oh how amazing 
Yeah. And time to perfection. Well, yeah, I knew when it was. My husband already had time off work because he works in schools and it was just that timing worked for him and I was like, right, we're going. And I'd actually gone to a meditation retreat the weekend before that too, like leading straight into it. So I'd gone to the the retreat kind of thing. He picked me up and we went straight there. So I was just in like optimal Zen mode. I'd already been doing all the nutritional things. I made sure that I, you know, I'd been was in great kind of physical and and emotional health from doing a whole lot of other preparation because I was also in this phase of like, okay, well, I can do all these things, but also the pressure's off because now we're looking at assisted technology and medication. So I wasn't pushing myself. I'd been in this cycle of like, I've done everything. Why is my body not working? And then, yeah, the pressure was suddenly off. So I just, I felt good. And I also had the knowledge that my my parents had conceived me after mum had only come off the pill for like two cycles or something. So I was like, right, my family, when we're on, we're on. We're going to do this. And yeah, it stuck. So, and now we have... Yeah, now we have a beautiful big one. And did you know that you were pregnant straight away or did you take a test? I knew within about five days because my breast like grew immediately and they were so tender I couldn't lie on my front. Yeah, okay, that's a good sign. (laughs) Which I was doing a lot of yoga so I picked up straight away that I couldn't. I couldn't actually tolerate any pressure. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, this is different. And although I hadn't had a cycle to monitor really, I'd learned things about checking you know, checking cervical mucus and looking for signs of of fertility or or changes in that reproductive area, and I could tell that things had changed there too. So yeah, that was that was the first bit. It was kind of like a, I waited to do the test, but I was also like, if I'm not pregnant, I'd be really surprised. Yeah. And how was that pregnancy for you? Oh, it was a breeze. <laughs> it was nice. great. Yeah. So I I was nauseous. Um, but manageable so long as I kind of ate. First thing when I woke up, I had some crackers by the bed, so I'd have a couple of crackers and then get up for the day. Uh, I found through my first trimester with both pregnancies. Oh, my goodness, babe, are you okay? (laughs) With both pregnancies that I kind of – I needed to eat all of my food for the day by by about 2 o'clock because I could only stomach a very minimal dinner. I was more – like I had more issues with feeling gross in the – in the evening Mm -hmm. but it was quite good because the job that I was working in for that first pregnancy I was finished by about three o'clock in the afternoon and then I could just come home and flake because I had no older kids to look after so like I would still go and you know exercise or yoga before work in the morning and then go and do my shift and feel pretty good and then I could come home and and, like lie on the couch and it was fine So it was beautiful. Yeah. And what was your perception of birth at that stage? Did you have any fear associated with it? Uh, I wouldn't say fear around birth. Mm-hmm. I, it was interesting because I, I was working in hospitals, although it wasn't in the area of maternity care. Uh, I, I think my fear from early on was more about about the the hospital system rather than the birth itself mm-hmm. so and and just unfamiliarity too birth isn't really something that's been spoken about in my, my family uh my mum for 
sort of musculoskeletal history reasons, she knew that when she had children, we were going to be born by a planned cesarean and under general anaesthetic. So there's really no, and and I don't have, I don't have tons of aunties or grandmothers or older cousins or whoever like to draw on. We're a small family, and I just didn't have that as part of my general vocab and and knowledge about about womanhood and child raising, really. So birth has been kind of like a, a practical thing that I know about in terms of sort of step-by-step but not in terms of a really deep understanding of the physiology or of the the psychological and emotional and spiritual aspects. So that that had to come through other means and um, I suppose you miss that when, when the first thing you do is going to the doctors and they say, okay, so uh, do you want to go public or private? I'm like, well, like at that point I did have private health insurance so I could have made that choice and I was like, well, I I guess private because I have private health insurance and that's what I've been paying for. Um, Actually, we were paying for it because we didn't know if we were going to need to go down IVF route but that's beside the point. And and they said, well, how about you go and have a read-up and then come back when you know who you want me to write your referral to. And so I did. I started researching who was around in our area, and and yeah, I just and really not only who was around in our area, but what different outcomes and modes of birth were likely to be. You know, I didn't. I I had sort of fear or perhaps wounding to an extent around cesarean birth because, like, I know that that not only did my mum already know that she needed a planned cesarean for both of us, I my pregnancy had placenta previa as well, so complete placenta previa okay. where, the, where the placenta covers the cervix. So I, like, I know that without cesarean surgeries, then neither, neither she or I would be here. But it's really, I really didn't want that for my own birth. I was quite a sickly kid. Um, I know we were separated. I know mum had a lot of pain and um, postnatal mental health troubles after my birth. And in my head, those were, those things were all connected. And I just wanted to avoid that as much as I could. So, yeah, I ended up finding a that our public health, local health district has a midwifery group practice two of them actually, one that's at the main John Hunter Hospital and one that's more at a birth centre at uh, based at Belmont. Mm-hmm. And I managed to get a referral to them and, yeah, found and got to know about continuity of care and all that stuff. And, and yeah, I was ticking, ticking the boxes that you need to tick to be low-risk public health. So that's the direction that I went. And about halfway through, maybe, maybe no, maybe two-thirds of the way through, I did both a hypnobirthing course and had some more meetings with my primary midwife. And they were both like, well, we support home birth. Why don't you do that? And I was like, oh, uh, I'm a bit scared. Maybe, maybe not for the first one. And then sort of went home and the idea grew on me and, did, did some more research and some more reading and some more watching and 
connecting with other people's stories and yeah decided that that was the way to go for us yeah cool and was there particular resources that you found helpful to get you over that line of feeling comfortable birthing at home yeah I suppose it was just something that that my husband and I had never really considered we didn't know I knew one one person who'd had a home birth maybe two two people Mm -hmm. and and it's just not something that's culturally unless you're in the space of birth which we weren't until that point it's just not something that we've really known anything about yeah so um i did watch a couple of different sort of movies or documentaries birth time wasn't around then but i think that one would have sealed the deal and i recommend to everybody to go and watch that especially if their partners need a bit more convincing um i think i watched some of like the business of being born and a few other documentaries that sort of showed what birth at home was really like. Mm-hmm. I also read a book at home, a, a book called birth at home um, by David Miller, which is a book of birth stories. Um, started. Yeah. I suppose listening to a few more podcasts and searching through social media and just immersing yourself. Yeah. The more that I understood about, about how birth works the more I wanted to be undisturbed and in my own space Mm. so yeah just tuning in like there was an there's an element of all that knowledge gathering and there's just an element of sitting in your body and being like where am I going to feel safest Mm. where do I feel safe right now and I I could feel the difference every day between how I felt as an employee in the hospital and being a pregnant person at home and going like, oh, well, this feels really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you already had that resistance a little bit towards the system before you even really understood what physiological birth was yeah. and what best supports it. Yeah, because I was already in the in the side of it that's dealing with the red tape. Yeah, I just felt I, I've always felt that there are things that are medical events and things that are life events that we medicalize and I would see that often in the case of like in the case of terminal illness and death and then then yeah coming to the other side of it I started being more and more aware of how it was in birth as well. Jumping to the end of your pregnancy how far along were you when you started to feel those signs that labor was starting? Uh so I went into labor at 41 and two. Um, that was, it was quite stressful though, because public midwifery practices can only keep you as their patient until 41 and six. Mm-hmm. So I was getting to that end point and I'd had to have a scan at the main hospital at 41 weeks on the dot. And it was a horrible experience. Like I really should have gone and written a formal complaint. Oh, why? Um, oh, like they wanted to check the amniotic fluid index or the level um, and they just they wanted to try and teach different people how to do it along the way and they had to they were making me lie on my back for it and it was a 20 or 30 minute process and I could only lay there for 5 or 10 minutes before I'd have to roll to my side or sit up or be or be physically sick onto the person who was scanning me 
and I couldn't leave the room, I couldn't get food, couldn't drink water, like all these things. It was just as if they were trying to find a problem basically to keep me there because they were offering, they were saying like, oh, well, you're, you're already here, we, might, we could induce you today. Mm. And I was like, that's not what I'm here for. And it took, it took getting them to call them my midwife directly and she had it out with them wow. to be able to leave basically. And if that had happened in my second pregnancy where I knew much more, I would have just been like, no, this is ridiculous, I'm walking out mm. or declined the scan in the first place. But I didn't know that first time around. Mm. Anyway, I was very glad when labour started at 41 and 2 because I didn't want to go anywhere near that place. Um, the first sign of labour was actually uh, I was out in the garden and our friend, our neighbours down the hill from us had a couple of goats at the time and they escaped and they ended up in our front yard. And so my husband and I picked up one goat each and I'm like going down the hill with this goat balanced on top of my massive 41-week belly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, um, yeah, the neighbour saw what was happening and came out the front and he was just about keeling over laughing. <laughs> and anyway, we got these goats back into their pen and then I'm standing beside the animal yard and I just was like, oh, I'm really hot. I need to go home and lie down. And, yeah, I, I went home and I lay on the couch and took some layers off and drank some water and then, yeah, I could start to feel that there were some tightenings coming and we, we were on. Any fears that arose during that time or none because you'd done the work? No, I was just – there was just so much relief. Okay. That morning I'd had a massive cry. I got up and – there was a full moon, I remember, actually, and I was sitting, pardon me, sitting in my lounge room on like a meditation cushion and I watched this big full moon set over the ridgeline and just had this big release cry of, of whatever will be will be, like if my care gets handed over, if I end up with an induction, if I end up with a caesarean, like if any of these things happen that I've been resisting so hard, then, then I will deal with it and, yeah you know, however many hours after that I went into labour. So I think those things are very much connected. Yeah, for sure. Wow, how special, hey? Yeah, yeah. So take us through that whole labour process. How were you feeling? I felt pretty good. I, I don't remember exactly, but I think I was able to have some food early on. I, I spent some time lying on the bed, maybe a few hours, and... Then I decided that I would have a bath because probably two occasions before that I'd had like a random contraction start and then I had a bath and they'd go away. So I thought if they stay or if they get stronger, even when I'm in the bath, then I'll know that it's, it's proper labor this time. And they did. And so, yeah, the first, the goat carrying and the first contraction happened at midday and then about seven at night, I was still lying lying on the bed and it was getting quite dark by this time and and my husband came in and he was like, oh, I'm just going to duck to the neighbor's house and, and have a beer. And then he realized that I was timing contractions and he was like, oh, okay, I'm not going. <laughs> like I must not have even communicated to him that I was in proper labor because this had happened a couple of times beforehand. I must not have even said anything to him. I don't know. But he realized what was happening and he was like, okay, I'm not going. I'm going to set up the birth pool instead. <laughs> so 
it was already inflated, but he kind of moved it to the lounge room and started feeling it. And, and yeah, at some point around then I must've checked in with both my doula and my midwife. And then maybe around eight, I said, yeah, okay. I think, I think it would be good for you to come to the doula. And she arrived at around nine o'clock and that was perfect because it wasn't until that time that I felt like I needed someone else with me, but she got there right on time. So then either her or my husband could, could stay with me because he was sort of doing setup and, and other things. And yeah, it was good. I always had one of them for me and one of them for other jobs. So yeah, that was the time where she suggested maybe I could change position because she could see I was starting to get a bit uncomfortable either on the bed or maybe I just stood up and was like leaning with my hands against the bed and she suggested we'd find somewhere a bit better. So we went out to my kitchen and leant with my hands on the kitchen table and she would just press my back when the contractions came and I ended up sort of getting closer and closer together. This birth was really just like like a rolling boil, like started off so so relatively gentle and just built and built and built. There was nothing, no, no, no little deviation. It was just a big build up and there was nothing else that could happen except a baby would come out. Mm-hmm. And she got to, uh, I don't know, it might have, must have got to about 10.30 at night and she said, when was the last time you spoke with the midwife? And I realised I couldn't actually answer her and just that my brain couldn't find the words or I couldn't speak them or something my brain had left the building and then she said she picked up on it and she was like oh I think we're getting to transition so we got on the phone and I think my husband was talking with her and and the midwife said I just I want to talk to Anna I want to hear her and as soon as as soon as I was holding the phone or I had the phone near me the next contraction hit and I felt this like boom, boom, boom. And I could just feel the baby like drop into my pelvis, like this just straight there. And I vomited as well. And she was like, okay, all right, I'm coming right now. And she only lived five minutes away or something like that. So she could be there quite quickly. I think she arrived at maybe 11 or quarter past, which is like I was getting in the pool exactly then. And, and that, second stage that pushing part just started straight away so yeah she was there for that bit that went for an hour and I was very loud um although my midwife said you weren't you know you wasn't that loud and my husband was like uh the only people who are that loud are people who are dying and wailing (laughs) so uh, I used my voice very much and he stood on the couch I stood sat on the couch in front of me and we just were monkey gripping each other's arms and and yeah so about an hour pushing in an in a kneeling position in the pool and yeah you know the intensity of the the baby coming particularly the first baby and and crowning and I could feel uh she sort of came in and out a couple of times and I could feel that I was going to tear and I just like it should come in, come out, come in, come out. And then I just was like, nah, bugger this. I'm just going to do it. And I gave an extra push and 
I, I did get a second degree tear, not perineal though, labial, which is an awkward position to then, you know, we and other things afterwards. But uh, that's that's what I did. And, um, yeah, when her head was out, it was just like peace and calm. And she gradually turned. And then the next one, her body came out and she was like the midwife held her and guided her out. I couldn't move my hands down to her I couldn't shift any little section of me at all um and yeah she was brought up brought up to my chest and placed over me with towels and it was just like this transcendent out-of-body amazing experience it was incredible incredible and yeah it took maybe I I have no idea how long at least 10 minutes maybe 20 of like pure joy before there was any like oh maybe we should maybe we should check what sex the baby is and yeah so I they we had the optimal optimal cord clamping and and eventually I was helped out of the pool and at that point I went to the toilet to um, and sat there sort of waiting to deliver the placenta and they did the baby checks and um, yeah once the placenta came I had I had a quick shower and then I lay on my bed and they sort of did a like checked what I needed and yes I did need stitching it was in an awkward spot so they needed to put a urinary catheter in to be able to make sure that they didn't stitch the urethra anywhere so I ended up having like they did uh, local anesthetic injections to do that and those injections were much more painful than the actual giving birth but I was very pleased to not have to transfer to the hospital. Mm. I was given the option of going there and having more like um, general pain relief for it but I was like, no way, I'm already on my bed. I'm just going to put up with this and it will be fine. Um, and, yeah, so... I got stitched up because of the catheter. I ended up with some um, continence issues in the first week. Like my my bladder control was quite poor for the first five days or so. Um, but yeah, no, otherwise pretty all good. And then we had our our first feed and went to bed in our own house and woke up in the morning with the sun coming through the curtains and baby on my chest and it was just beautiful. Oh everything that I'd been working towards came to be. Mm. It was incredible. And I think, um, yeah, you can sort of look at how look at how the system is and how birth can be unpredictable and say, oh, I'm so lucky to have this kind of birth. And, yeah, like there are, there are parts of it that luck can be a factor. But also, like, I worked bloody hard for that birth. Yeah. Like I did a lot of mental and physical preparation for that and practical preparation. And, there, yeah, there was a lot that went into making that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And how was your recovery? Any tips on healing with stitches? Um, I, I wish that I had learned to recline feed sooner because I was feeding the baby in the cradle kind of position, you know, the standard one that you see on TV and whatever, which – meant that I had to sit quite upright on those stitches, which wasn't pleasant. And also 
something I did for my second, after my second birth that I didn't with the first was have a sits bath, which is like a little extra tub that just sits in the top of your toilet bowl. And usually you fill it with, like fill it with water and herbs or Epsom salts or something like that to be kind of a healing soak. But if you just put cool water in it and then sit in the water to wee, the it's not as stingy because it's getting diluted on the way. So that could be useful for somebody. Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. Yeah. We, I also had a like a perineal uh, spray kind of thing, um, like with different uh, antiseptic and essential oils and things in it. And this time a friend also gave me some something called perifoam and it's something that you can wipe onto your uh, oh yeah foam foam that you put onto the pad that then that touches your body rather than the rather than the actual either fabric or cotton of the of the pad and it does some extra nice like pain relief and healing work too yeah okay awesome so at what point after this experience did you decide to write your book um good question so I I had her in April 2019 and I started writing the book in October 2020 so around 18 months after and it's sort of been swirling around for a while I'd been writing a lot of blog posts and social media things and I just felt like there's so much that I would like to say and it was all kind of swirling around and I thought this is either going to end up a thousand blog posts that will all get pushed further and further down in some corner of the internet that no one's going to find Mm. or I could really do this properly and it could be useful for someone and I think it was a good timing for me as well because I I had trained as a postpartum doula during that 18 month period as well and I was just kind of getting to the point with my then toddler of going yeah I think I think I'm good enough now that I would be able to help other people you know I was coming out of my own postpartum fog and then the world kind of locked down (laughs) no actually I was due to go back to work at the hospital I had one week back at the hospital in March 2020 and then full you know, pandemic, pandemonium cut loose. And I just was like, I I can't be here with a baby at home. This is too scary and too big schmuzzle. And so I, I ended up leaving that job. And, yeah, so the, the part of that was, though, that when I started writing the book and there were various lock, in and out of lockdowns and things like that, my partner was working from home for some of it. So even when, and even when he wasn't, it was sort of I would take one to two hours every afternoon or evening that I would lock myself away and write or edit or work on the book and it was time that was just for me and cathartic for me. And it also meant that it was really good practice because I could hear when my daughter was crying and I would make myself not go to her and they would have to figure it out for themselves. Their, their bond and his ability to soothe her and be okay caring for her for longer, longer and longer periods of time 
just exponentially increased. So it was good for our good for our whole family as much as it was like stressful, particularly when I set two optimistic deadlines for myself at the end and was staying up till all hours. But okay. you know, beside the point. Yeah. Wow. Good on you. So, at what point did you feel ready to conceive your next baby? I was nowhere near that point until she was two and a half. She was a really atrocious sleeper. Um, you know, the 10 out of 10 uh, clinger or Velcro kid to me, very high, like highly sensitive, emotional little bean, and I, I couldn't do it until that point. I, I also fed her on demand for a really, really long time, and I think I should have set some boundaries earlier in retrospect for both of our well-beings um but yeah once we had once we'd fully weaned in the day and we were down to sort of a morning a wake up and a bedtime feed and maybe one through the night which was at about two and a half I was like yeah all right I think I could do this again now and it was again I had two cycles this time and then fell pregnant at like to when she was two years and nine months I think so yeah it was I my my mental readiness and my physical readiness really synced up there again as well it was like yep I think I can do this cycle back just a couple of periods and and we were there amazing was there anything you did in the lead up to get yourself health-wise prepared for pregnancy yeah so I had a period uh, when she was around a about yeah, a year and a half to two years old, maybe even a bit before that, where I had a, a lot of food intolerances surface at the same time, which is something that can happen with sort of a postnatal depletion state, apparently, even though I'd done a lot of work about, you know, being really good with healthy, nutritious food in that early postpartum period, these things it just just happened anyway so uh I had to go on a very uh restricted diet no yeah lots of different food categories were cut out and so I had to work through that and gradually start reintroducing foods after six months a really slow process lots of other supplements and things like that so yeah I'd been quite focused on that and and going with that as well, having to be mindful about doing an ex- an amount of exercise that was helpful for me but didn't actually make me worse. So I hadn't gone back to any kind of high-intensity stuff that I used to do before. You know, I like I liked to do triathlons and lift heavy stuff and I just hadn't been doing that. I'd just been walking and, and sort of body weight exercises and things and just, yeah, get, getting myself right in all aspects and trying to get as much sleep as I could because I was having to catch up a lot from that early, <laughs> the, particularly that first year. It was brutal. Yeah, okay. How was that pregnancy experience for you? Oh, <laughs> chalk and cheese compared to the first one. Still no major pregnancy complications, luckily, but we were just so sick. Like talk to any parent of young children that's just been through this winter, particularly after a couple of years of not seeing so many people through that kind of flu season. Mm-hmm. And it was it was horrendous. So our first sickness came when I was six weeks pregnant and my daughter, yeah, 
who was nearly three, just completely went off food. And so the only thing that she could keep down was breast milk. So I went from like two feeds a day to being to being pregnant and feeding her like, you know, eight, 10, 12 times a day for a week. And I just was like, I can't, I can't do this. And so as soon as we got just enough better, we were both very sick, but when we got well enough, I just was like, you know, I've done the gentle weaning down one feet at a time kind of thing before and I'm not doing that this time. We're just going cold turkey. Like you can have your one, one feed to go to sleep and one feed when you wake up, but I'm not doing any others. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to keep that boundary for, you know, three, four, five nights. I can't remember what it was. But just, yeah, keeping, uh, you know, keeping a lot of closeness and affection with her. She was still co-sleeping with me as well. So I didn't deny deny any of that, but just no overnight feeds. Mm -hmm. So we went from doing that to a couple of weeks after that at nine, I was nine weeks pregnant. And my supply just dried up completely. So, yeah, went like three weeks before that I was, you know, keeping her alive, 12, week, 12 feeds a day, and then, and then suddenly there just wasn't even a drop there. So that was like I think that was a blessing in disguise because we ended up getting every possible virus. I think I counted up that she was sick 13 times between between that six weeks and the end of my pregnancy and I copped it probably 10 of those and I was so run down that even things like when she brought hand, foot and mouth home from kindy, I got it too and it all went through my throat so I couldn't I like, I couldn't eat food, proper food, anything that wasn't completely pureed or liquid for about a week. Like we had COVID twice, we had both flus, we had RSV that I coughed so hard for two weeks that I ended up having to see a pelvic floor physio because I was like, had that stress incontinence from coughing so much. Like I just coughed everything. So it was very different and it is different because you can't just flake at any point in time. You know, she didn't nap. She is a slow, a low sleep needs kid, so she would be awake until nine o'clock at night and awake and ready to go at six in the morning. And that's we just had to roll with that. <laughs> that's just how it was. Mm. It was very, very different. Yeah, good on you. You survived it <laughs> oh, somehow. Yes. <laughs> so with this next birth, you obviously chose home birth again. I chose home birth again, but this time I went with a private midwife Mm -hmm. and primarily just because I didn't want that time pressure. You know, I know second babies usually come a little bit earlier than first babies, but that's, that's really not always the case. And I felt so close to that deadline of the 41 and six with the public program. And I knew that with a private midwife, I could stay with them until 43 Mm -hmm. weeks and or 42 and 6 or 43 and 0. Either way, I just was like, look, that's my baby's not going to come more than 10 days later than the first one. That feels safer to me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just wanted to be an extra step removed from the medical system basically. So, yeah, no reflection on the care that I got in my first birth. It's just that I wanted that extra security blanket for the, for the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
anything that you did differently for this pregnancy as in you know any refresher courses or yeah books that you read yeah so I've been pretty immersed in the world of pregnancy and birth and postpartum since having my first child so I didn't go and do any additional courses um there were some extra books that I read but also I read books about birth for fun now so (laughs) you know like before I got pregnant I've been reading birth outside the system and um I I think I read I read Jane Hardwick Collins book this time I've read spiritual midwifery somewhere in between that as well so yeah I did I did do as much reading and official kind of learning this time um I I think I ended up having the same number of scans. So I had a I wanted to have the twelve and twenty week. So I did those and then at the twenty week one they said, Oh, you know, your placenta's two and a half centimeters away from the cervix and you know, we know that as as the uterus expands that lifts up, but everybody has to really cover their own butts and go, yep, well, it definitely has moved far enough away. It hasn't encroached. It never gets closer to the cervix. So I don't know why why it's recommended to do that. But I was just like, yeah, okay, let's get that over and done with. So I had that at 34 weeks. Um, I declined the some of the screening things, gestational diabetes and group B strep and I'm sure there are some other ones that I said, no, I don't need that, thank you, along the way. And I just made a plan with my midwife as well. Um, So I decided that I didn't want any monitoring, even intermittent monitoring, during the second stage of labour this time around. I just wanted, you know, I just wanted hands-off approach to everything, basically. I trust that birth works. I just wanted to be in my zone without hands on me so we discussed that and I didn't have any kind of um, cervical checks or sweeps or anything like that at any point and yeah we were just kind of waiting and it got to so I was given a couple of different due dates as well because my my timing wasn't I didn't have enough data from cycles to know when my ovulation was exactly. I I knew it was either day 12 or day 16, but I didn't know which one. And so some of the scans gave, gave different kind of size readings and sort of reflected to different ones. So I did have a booking and appointment at the hospital, which the the midwife there was lovely, but it also reminded me why I don't want to be at a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And, so there, by their dates, I would have gone into labour at, at, at 41 and 3, again, the same as, or 41 and 2, the same as with my first child and, yeah, with the other, the other possible dates, it was 41 So on the dot. So either way, another 41-week baby for me. That must just be how long my babies like to cook for. Yeah, that's right. Any fears around tearing for this birth? Um, no, I, I wasn't particularly worried about the, about the tearing again. I don't like, it didn't, yeah, like it was, it was annoying, but it didn't feel like anything 
traumatic. So I, I wasn't particularly worried. I was like, oh, if it happens again, that's just that's how it is. Yeah. I did do some perineal massage this time, but not as much because I do it in the shower and at least half the time I was showering with my three-year-old. So that wasn't happening. The same as like I did express colostrum antenatally, but not nearly as much or as often as I did in the first pregnancy because, again, finding private time and space to do that. Um, and also I'd been I'd breastfed up until partway through that pregnancy, so I was pretty confident that, that my milk would kick in again as needed. So that was all good. Um, I'd had two, I think, two nights where I'd woken up at sort of 2 a.m. and felt contractions maybe eight minutes apart and gone like, okay, I'll go back to sleep and see, like, see what happens and woken up and they'd gone away. So I knew it was getting close. And, yeah, there was just, I think it was a Thursday morning and I woke up and I said, I said to my husband, like, if you've got any loose ends to tie up at work, I think you need to do them today because you're not going to be in tomorrow. And I didn't have an exact reason as to why, just it, something felt like it, it was going to happen. And, yeah, I, I went into labour at 10 o'clock that night. I put my, put my older daughter to bed and I was lying in bed with her and yeah this about 9 9:30 I'm looking at her going like I think this is going to be going to be the last night that you're my only one and just really you know how you look at their little angel face and just try and drink them all in and and yeah about 10 o'clock the labor started I just had a few a few contractions sort of 12 minutes apart and at 10.30 I was like, all right, if this is going to be it, I need to sleep because I've been awake since 6 or 7 in the morning. I had a little nap in the afternoon but it wasn't going to be enough. So like if, if, this is, if this is actual labour, I'm going to need to sleep. So I did manage to get sort of two hours sleep before my big girl got up and got into the bed with me and I don't know if it was because she did that or because the – surges were getting stronger and a bit closer together but I was not going back to sleep after that so um I sort of waited it out around half an hour and then I woke my partner up and was like ah can I I don't know if this is in or not but can you just set up the lounge room in case and and he did and I labored beside the bed and and yeah decided that I would phone my friend who I didn't have an official doula this time but she's had a couple of babies herself she's supported someone else through their birth too and she's just so good with my big kid that I was like thinking that she'd be a great support either for me or for or for my child so she came up about 3 a.m and we had we had until four o'clock, just her and I, like in the birth space, I'd set it all up with beautiful candles and altar and affirmations and everything was where I wanted it and really peaceful music coming through the speaker. And I was able to, I really wanted to use my voice through this birth. And I was singing, singing along with the music through my contractions back to sort of center myself and, and, to sing with love to my baby and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, she was with me until about 4 o'clock when the midwife arrived because I'd had – she'd said to me 
um, let me know when your contractions are six minutes apart because, you know, second labors, things can really ramp up and I've got a way to travel. So I'd had a couple of contractions rolling together five minutes apart and I thought, okay, now's, now's the time. They sort of skipped for about seven or eight minutes to five minutes apart. So I, I gave her a ring and she arrived at four. And at that point, my husband and my friend swapped over. So she, my friend went in with my daughter and then when she woke up in the morning about 6.30, she just collected her things and took her down to her grandparents' house for us. That was the plan. And, yeah, my partner was, was in with me from that point. Um, yeah, my midwife arrived and because I'd had the experience the first time around where the midwife didn't arrive until until I was starting to push basically. I hadn't really thought about monitoring during the first stage at all. It's not a conversation that we'd had. So she arrived and said, do you consent to having, you know, only external but checks now? So, you know, blood pressure and listen to the baby with the Doppler and, and where the baby's positioned and things like that now and each half hour for this phase of labor and it was just something in my gut feel that I said I I'm happy to do this round and then I don't want any more and so she accepted that we did we had those checks done everything was fine except for the first time ever in the pregnancy the baby was posterior so that was a bit of a curveball yeah okay. <laughs> yeah and and Although I'd rung her when the contractions were five minutes apart and then they sort of got to three minutes apart, then they would also space out to like nine or ten minutes apart. And they really kept oscillating between really far apart and quite close together for many, many hours. And um, baby being posterior, I, I assumed a kneeling position with my knees on a cushion and my forearms and head resting on the couch in front of me. And I and I stayed there for probably four hours. I could feel the baby was just gradually turning and turning and turning to the left. But it seemed to take a really long time. And during that, yeah, I could hear with the music on, sometimes there'd be two contractions in the one song and then another two full songs would pass before the next one. And it was just so frustrating because compared to that first birth where everything just started slow and built and built and built. This one felt like it was just going up and down and sideways and I didn't know if the baby would be here in an hour or here in 24 hours' time and I'd be doing it for a whole extra day and night. I had no idea. So, yeah, it was it was a real mind games experience and I felt like I really had to draw on the knowledge that I'd taken or the knowledge that I've, I'd accumulated about birth over the previous four years to really trust that what was happening was normal and was all in her own good time. Yeah. Because, yeah, the temptation of providers, if I was in a hospital, would be to be like, this is slowing down, something's wrong, we'll, you know, we'll augment your labour with syntocin and then we'll monitor and blah, 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 blah. But I, she, she just needed that time to turn and she needed sometimes those really long long breaks in between contractions, I think, to be able to get enough oxygen because she was doing work to, to, to find the best spot to get out. Yeah. So about 8 o'clock, 
I think in the morning, I just, my hip flexors needed a break from being in that kneeling position. So I got into the pool and I used some more kind of lunging positions or floating on my side a bit to, to again, try and help her get around to a, a better, a better position. And, and yeah, it got to maybe 10 o'clock. And by this time, my peaceful music was all like angry Nirvana and Pearl Jam and stuff because I was just like very annoyed by the whole thing. And <laughs> I think the midwives could tell that I was – so the second midwife was there by this time as well. I think um, they could tell that I was getting pretty irritated by the whole situation. So they decided to go for a walk and not long after they left, like the whole – everything, the vibe just changed and suddenly contractions pretty much stopped. They became maybe 10 minutes apart and I, I, yeah, I looked over to my partner and I said, I'm going to take this as a rest and be thankful phase before transition rather than that things are stalling. Like that's how I'm going to interpret this because mm-hmm. I felt really good. And I knew that that's something that can happen with a physiologic birth. You just, like, your body takes a little bit of time to recoup before the, like the eye of the storm, before the big wild winds come. And I said, I'm, like, I'm deciding that this is what it is. There's nothing wrong. I can still feel the baby moving. This is this is how it's going to be from now on. Yeah. And um, the midwives were just getting back as I was getting out of the pool. And I said, I'm just... I'm, I'm going to go to the toilet. I felt like I needed a position with more gravity assistance just to kick over to that next bit and help get a bit more pressure of the head onto the cervix and pelvic floor. So I um, moved to the t- toilet, stayed there for a few contractions, grabbed a stool, like a two-step kind of stool, and went back out to out to the lounge room and set that up beside the beside the edge of the pool and I tried sitting on the lower step which is like quite a deep squat position and the next contraction came and it was so intense being down that low there was no way I could sit there I pretty much jumped a mile in the air and um yeah put myself up onto the higher stool instead and that was much better so I was leaning forward and my partner was pressing on my back and hips kind of providing counter pressure for each contraction and that was when they started like actually getting closer together. But they still, I don't think they ever hit that point of what, like what's the numbers that they say, you know, if you get to this many contractions in this many minutes, that's when you should go to the hospital. Like I don't think I ever reached that. Mm. If we'd been trying to get to hospital, I wouldn't have made it because like my labor just did not go like that. They might've still been five minutes apart or something. Like they were intense, but they were still pretty spaced out, I think. Yeah, okay. So did that. I think I had a couple of contractions standing up as well. Uh, and then I sort of dropped to my knees beside the pool with my, my arms resting on it and him still pressing on my back when I needed. And I was really trying to – I started feeling the urge to push, but I was really trying just to breathe and be with that sensation of wanting to until my body started doing it for itself. Like I know uh, B from – core and floor restore talks about the difference between the urge to vomit and actually vomiting 
So I was like, all right, I'm going to breathe through the urge to push until my body is actually pushing because that's protective against pelvic floor injury as well. So I, I was doing that and then I just felt this little tuck of my hips, an involuntary tuck movement during it. Um, and that it, I'd felt that in my first birth as well, like just before she'd started coming out. So I was like, oh, all right, we're definitely on now. And my midwife must have seen it too. And she said, if you want to get in the pool, now is the time. And I just said, I don't think I can move. I don't, I don't know how to move. And my husband is conveniently a giant and he just like just stood up, hooked his hands underneath my underarms and spun me around and plopped me into the water. And I was in there just in time for the next contraction to come. And I reached my hands down and I was like, because it was so, so full on, I reached my hands down and felt and I realised I couldn't feel ahead yet. And I was like, oh, no, it's going to get so much more intense. How could it possibly get any more intense than this? I, I just kind of wailed, like, how did I do this the first time? <laughs> um, anyway, next contraction, her head did come and she managed to, like, crown and get – she got all the way out to her chin with that next contraction. And, uh, like, discussing it afterwards, we realised that probably her hand – both her hands were up around her mouth. Um, so, so she got out to her nose but her mouth and chin were still inside. And I had to really like pant and try and do like little pushes to to clear her chip out, so that then so that then she could start the process of you know how their body rotates a little bit before they come out. So I had to get her chin out so that she could rotate. Um, but she had these hands there, and even when I did get the chin out, I could feel she was still like pretty much doing uppercuts, both arms inside me and legs pumping as well, like just trying to figure out how she was going to be to get out. Mm. And so, yeah, whereas I felt great peace during that turning with my first birth, the second birth did not feel like that. I was just waiting for another contraction to get the baby out of me. So, yeah, I was able to, the next contraction, her her body came and I was holding her head to sort of guide her up. I felt like I was going to drop her a little bit. So I, I asked the midwife to help guide her body forward, um, but I think I mostly had her until until yeah I lifted her up out of the water and brought her up to my chest and um she did have her cord wrapped kind of around one shoulder and I think around her back as well um a really long cord and she'd done lots of turning side to side like head down for the last couple of months but really changing a lot between left side right side left side right side and I think she had done a turn in that labor to unravel herself so that she could descend that's my theory. And I didn't have any bad tears this time. I had a nick again up in that same kind of place near the labia, but I think that might have actually been from her fingernails trying to get out. Oh, yeah. Um, because, yeah, 41-week babies have pretty pretty pointy fingernails by the time they get out of you. Mm. And she was doing, doing a lot of work to get those hands out. So that, yeah, pain on urinating for the first few days and using the sits bar but overall no no stitching needed this time and a much easier recovery yeah nice how big were your babies uh my first was 3.82 so about eight i think eight pounds seven okay and 
my second was a bit smaller, actually, 3.45 kilos, which is, I don't know, seven pound something big. Yeah, okay. And what about your placenta, your fourth stage? How was that? Yeah, placenta was stubborn. Didn't want, didn't want to um, leave the nest. I had a really beautiful undisturbed skin to skin this time. I wanted the placenta to stay connected by the cord to the baby until the placenta was born this time. And that was sort of part of my plan, basically just so that I couldn't be, that I wouldn't be separated from the baby. Um, like I, in retrospect, I'm not quite sure why, like why I went to the toilet and the baby had the baby checks quite early on, um, with my first birth. So I wanted her not only like optimal delayed cord clamping, I wanted her to stay connected until the placenta came. And I didn't, I didn't know the sex of either of my babies either. Like I'm saying her as a, now that I know, but I didn't know at the time. Um, and yeah, so we were lying on the couch and I'd started straight away with my after pains plan because um, my first, after my first birth, my after pains were crippling. Like I was in tears every time I fed and had a letdown because of those after pains for the first two days. And I thought these are meant to get worse with each birth. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So we put a plan in place straight away. You know, while I was still in the pool, I popped my first ibuprofen. I had all the all the herbal medicines, all the heat packs, all the everything to try and um, minimise that as much as possible. And they were much, much better. Um, and, yeah, we had our first feed lying on the couch. I was brought beautiful tea from Blissful Herbs and I had muffins that I'd made that – just got warmed up and brought to me and it was just lovely. Uh, and after two hours, the placenta, oh, no, it was almost three hours, the placenta hadn't come yet. And the midwives were saying, oh, yeah, it's probably probably time. We probably just need you to get up and so that gravity can help you expel the placenta. I was like, yeah, fair enough. Okay. So sort of got a bit more propped upright and tried pressure points and, um, I had some more kind of placenta release tincture stuff and tried various things and, and it wasn't happening. So I got up and sort of squatted over a bowl, no good, went to the toilet, emptied my bladder, no good. And it was, you know, getting quite a long time by now and just wasn't, just wasn't coming. And I also wasn't getting, I wasn't getting the after pains and contractions either anymore. And I, I'd really tried with all the maternal effort that I could <laughs> to expel that placenta, but it wasn't happening. And I felt like if I kept trying and kept pushing, I was going to cause myself like a prolapse or some kind of injury that was unrelated to the actual birth of the baby. So, um, yeah, I, I decided to have a syntocinin shot at that time. And about 20 minutes or half an hour later, the placenta was born. So, yeah, almost three and a half hours between the birth of the baby and the birth of the placenta. Yeah, okay. I think it's also a really key thing to note as well that, you know, there's still that misconception that having a home birth with a private midwife means, you know, absolutely no medical interventions. But a private midwife has all the tools in her toolkit to offer when necessary or if wanted, obviously not the extreme things like an epidural, but, you know, an injection to help the placenta and you were able to have stitching with a local in your own bed. Yeah. You know, they do come armed, guys, just exactly. in case. 
And all of those were presented to me with the option of we can do this at home or if you want, we can transfer to hospital and then do it. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was either way. And with this one, like with the placenta, you know, I, I really did want a physiologic third stage as well because, you know, a physiologic birth is the whole lot, right? Mm. Um, but after that much time, I re- I really didn't want to transfer to hospital and I knew that if I kept saying no and it didn't come, then it would, you know, potentially lead to a, like a DNC kind of situation for a retained placenta or or potentially sepsis or whatever. Like I've heard of physiologic birth of the placenta that happens seven hours after. I know it's possible, but I wasn't going to be waiting for that, and yeah. I, I didn't want my I didn't want my midwives waiting around for that either. I just kind of wanted our own space. And um, when the placenta was born and they inspected it, it was complete. So there were no bits that had been that had been left inside. But they noticed that there was a small extra kind of crescent-shaped membrane at the edge of the placenta. I'm not quite sure how to explain it. It wasn't an extra lobe. I don't think it was vascularized like with the blood vessels in it, but it just had this extra little, um, yeah, little crescent shape on it. And they said that they'd seen one other birth in the previous 12 months that it had also been a completely unmedicated birth where the placenta had refused to come and needed a syntocin and shot. And... Yeah, their speculation was that perhaps the rest of the placenta had detached as as expected, but that bit was maybe clinging on for both me and the other woman and they're not not quite sure why. So, yeah, that was really interesting to see that perhaps there was like an anatomical difference and reason for that. Yeah, wow, so interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Did you do anything special with your placentas? I don't think I've asked that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've been encapsulated both times. And uh, the Oxytocin Collective here in Newcastle does a placenta print for you as well. So they, yeah, they take some photos and do a print and they um, obviously encapsulate it. But they also shape the umbilical cord into the word love and dry it for you and I actually find that quite interesting because now I have both of my girls cords and I can see how my second baby who had had that really long cord like that word is so much more stretched out and bigger and longer (laughs) compared to my birth I'm like oh yeah you probably were a bit tangled if you had that much rope to get tangled in yeah so is this your family complete now I know it's still very (laughs) early days oh I think my logical head probably says yes but the rest of my body is definitely saying no I just don't want to be I did not want to be pregnant over a winter like that again like it was horrible so maybe we'll maybe we'll try for we had one baby born in April and one in November so maybe we could aim for another April one in future but I don't know yeah fair enough so to wrap up the episode what would be your key piece of advice for any expectant mothers out there listening (sighs) I think figuring out where you're going to feel safest is a really good start. Yeah. And you can't make that decision based on just like culture. You have to actually go and, and look at what is happening, what is happening in our hospitals, what is happening at home. Um, private midwives will have a no obligation kind of meeting with you to suss out if you're a good fit. There is there's no harm in having a meeting regardless of if you – are intending to home birth or not because they can provide antenatal and postnatal care even if you choose to birth with someone else in the hospital, you know. So I think 
you need to, yeah, you need to figure out where you're going to feel safe and then really lean into doing the work around that um, birth planning or birth mapping and and having all of your preparation done to really trust birth and trust yourself and trust your baby as much as possible. I feel like my first birth was really about trusting my body and the thing, realising what my capacities are, like to see or to experience my own physical strength to be to be the mother that that she needed me to be and she was really really challenging as a baby and then this time has been really about like trusting that my baby knows what knows what she needs um yeah yeah it's all about trust and I think it's and I think for postpartum it's really about preparation you know we I prepared a lot for the first time which a lot of new mothers don't but I I prepared a lot and that kept me afloat when I actually had a like I remember my first postpartum as a really blissful time even though I was stitched and recovering and had some kind of, I had some feeding troubles and you know I, I still remember it as a really blissful beautiful time and then this time around having prepared for a baby as hard as the first baby while still having to parent that difficult baby who's now a tricky three-and-a-half-year-old instead. Like we put so much work into this planning and amassing support and just saying yes, thank you to everything instead of being like, oh, no, don't trouble yourself, that's too much. And it uh, it just feels so good. Mm. It feels amazing. And we're finding such a good groove as a family because of it. You know, partners take absolutely as much leave as you possibly can and take it all at the start don't think oh, i'll save it up for later when we have a holiday when they're seven months old no use it all at the start and you know work together so that you each get as much sleep as you need to and you know have a meal train and all of these things like you know i i know you'll have my social media and website and things on the show notes so i'll just say that i do have a free like planning for your postpartum guide available so have a look at that. I think it needs an update now that I've now that I've prepared for a postpartum with two kids instead of just for a first baby. I think it needs an update. Um, but yeah, like you need as much support around you as you can, so that you can so that you can love up your older child through that transition as well, and really help them find find their their new place in the family. But just realize that. It's not that there's been any love taken away from them and given to the baby. It's just that there's been there's more love added to your family. There's just extra love instead of something taken away from them. Yeah, okay. Do you have any more books in the works now that you're a mama of two? Oh. <laughs> Probably not. I, I don't know. I think I might have to sit with that for a while. It was, yeah. it was a seven-month process from starting to having the book in my hands, which is actually quite fast for a book because it's like it's a proper book it's 250 pages or something like that like it's a proper book um but yeah i i don't know i don't know about that yet at the moment my uh my energy for creative things is mostly going into like very sarcastic memes so <laughs> which i'm loving by the way <laughs> yeah so uh i don't know i don't know i i'm looking forward to getting back into doing 
um, doing some podcasting as well. So, yeah, I, I have a podcast called Anna Asks. And at the moment I'm just doing like a postpartum diary about how that's how postpartum is actually looking for us and how our plans have unfolded and, and worked in practice. And, and I'll probably go back to doing some interviews again um yeah later later in the year when i come back from maternity leave yeah okay i didn't know you had a podcast yeah check it out yeah i will actually that's good to mention because the the audiobook version of mama you're not broken it's not on like a audible or anything like that i just read it out in full for free on the podcast oh wow that's amazing it's a fair way back but like scroll back to season two Mm -hmm. because i feel like people just you know like the point of writing the book is for people to hear the message and feel okay not to you know like I'm not gonna make a zillion dollars on it unless Oprah reads it and decides that it's great so yeah, yeah it's just it's just there for you to listen <laughs> oh that's wonderful I'm such an audiobooks kind of gal so I will yes. definitely be tuning into that episode thank you oh when you're in this season of life yeah. <laughs> sometimes listening is much much better mm, yeah definitely absolutely <laughs> Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today, Anna. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us. Uh, Thank you very much. And I did, I actually, I said to my midwife as well that I would, um, that I wanted to mention her and give her a shout out. So if you're looking for a private midwife, Central Coast or Newcastle-ish kind of area, um, home birth with Helen, she was really great. Amazing. (laughs) We'll link her details in the show notes as well. Cool. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's episode. I love that Anna went from someone who only really knew the medicalized side of birth to then having two empowering home births. It really doesn't matter where you are on your journey or what stories you've grown up hearing about birth. Getting educated about physiological birth and what best supports that is going to ignite that innate knowing within you that you were built for this. Head to the show notes for all the links mentioned in today's episode and do yourself a favor and follow Anna's page. She shares not only her authentic experiences in motherhood and postpartum, but some pretty hilarious memes. Please also check out all her offerings, which again, I have linked in the show notes for you guys. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If you love PBA, we would be forever grateful for a rating on your podcast platform. This helps us to continue this work and to reach more women who need it. Thank you so much for listening. Let me know what you think of today's episode over on the PBA Instagram, and I will see you all next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia.